the volume. This session is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. They're America's number one sportsbook for a reason, y'all. It's so easy to use. It's safe and secure. That's one of the main things for me. I don't want any BS. I love that there's no BS with FanDuel. Plus, you get your winnings fast. Now winnings are delivered in as quick as two hours. Plus, it's super fun to combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. It's awesome. So if you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with the promo code Renee, that's R-E-N-E-E, so that they know that I sent you. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, Wyoming, or West Virginia. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona 18887897777 or visit ccpg.org/chat for Connecticut 1800gambler or visit fanduel.com/rg for Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and Virginia 1877770stop for Louisiana 1800270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan 18778hopeny or text hopeny for New York Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 and 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming. Visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on the show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to, to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, so it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. Um, okay, let's talk Wrestler's Court because I never got to experience Wrestler's Court. When did it go away? I think it went away in the mid 2000s, I want to Yeah, I get it, <laughs> but it's a little bit of a shame that it went away. I kind of like the. Uh, I would like it, you <laughs> I, I know, like especially the idea if it, it was in full cosplay mode. You know, I have on the cover the Undertaker in like a old English, you know, wig and hat and everything. But he was he was dressed normal, although he did have a gavel, I think. But yeah, it was one of those things where it was a time honored locker room tradition of people, you know, 100 percent before me, wrestlers, um, maybe managers and announcers. I don't know, but not that I know of. But if you violate a certain locker room code or rule or break a rule on the road, if you. I don't, I don't know what the infractions were. I mean, like ride jumping is a, is a, like if you start a trip oh, with someone, you got to no, stay no. with them throughout the entire trip. You don't be like, oh, someone invited me onto their bus. See ya. You know, that's a big no, no. But for me, it was the, you know, and I just get into it right away. The, the, I had the audacity to accept uh, a gift from edge. Um, you know, the infamous flash action figure, um, that was, you know, this, this gift, ex- not even exchange because I didn't give him anything, but this gift was received, uh, by me in the view of hardcore Holly, who 
Like if there was a pro wrestling illustrated, you know, most hated, most liked, most detrimental to your life. If he sees you accepting a flash action figure from another wrestler list, he would be number <laughs> one and, and, and kind of entrenched in number one. So, yeah, I mean, he saw that, you know, and again, there, there was, there's, it's all fun and games with his real implications because his issue wasn't um, why is this kid getting an action figure? It might've been, but it was mainly more like, I'm working my ass off. I'm taking bumps. I'm on the road. I am busting my ass and I'm not getting TV time or the TV time I feel I should be getting. And yet Edge and Christian who are buddies with this writer and we were buddies and are is on TV four or five times a night, every night. What the fuck's that all about? So that was the impetus, you know, for me. Trades for action figures, baby. I'll get you some TV time. Let's go. And Christian, by the way, who was nowhere in the vicinity of the Flash gift exchange. I don't even know where he was, but he was we were all three of us were brought into court. Um, And yeah, the charge was accepting gifts for TV time, which like, honestly, if I knew that was a thing, I would be the most corrupt um, (laughs) writer. Like, send me your gifts. I'll put. Yes, please. Here's my address. I'll open a post post office thing. Yeah. Little P.O. box. Uh, I love it. Um, Okay, so I also just love realizing like how much of your family is so entrenched in this world as well. I mean, your uncle Howard, uh, he inspired you to be a writer, your sisters in the business as well. Um, Give me like a little bit of a backstory, what it was like growing up, seeing the accomplishments of your uncle and thinking like that was the line of work that you wanted to end up doing. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, that's exactly it. You know, there was something really cool to be like a a time, a third grader, you know, watching an episode of taxi and not understanding any of it. (laughs) And, but seeing your uncle's name, you know, as the writer of the show. Um, And then I thought that was really, really cool. Um, And then not just from an ego thing, but actually wanting to do it. So I wrote with a friend of mine, um, we sold out very, very early. Um, because I, my friend and I, both of us Jewish wrote the Smurfs first Christmas. Um, and we, when we casted it and performed it in front of our elementary school, third grade and down, uh, in a predominantly Jewish Long Island, uh, elementary school too. So, but there was like, that was the thing that was, you don't see Hanukkah specials on. Yeah. We didn't have eight crazy nights by then. No, that was way off. So that was something. And by the way, I got an ego off of that because the next year, fourth grade, I wanted to write a Pac-Man play to perform in front of the school. And the teachers are like, what are you talking about? Uh, you're not. And I'm like, do you know who I am? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to see my credentials? Oh, I'll forward my headshot and resume. I'm ready to go. The Smurf play. Lady, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, there, there was, you know, seeing his name in the credits and, and that kind of fueling my passion to want to do what he does. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to, you know, it wasn't so much, oh, I want my name in the credits. It was so much as like, wow, he's writing a television show and it's being seen by millions of people. Uh, how cool is that? That's yeah. a real, um, so that's really what I wanted to do off of that. And, and it, you know, it extended with all the other shows that he wrote, um, you know, and that included, you know, such like big kind of shows like, you know, Larry Sanders show and wings. He was the showrunner on wings for many God, years. What credentials he has. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wrote a Simpsons. That was very cool. When I was a freshman in college, you know, his Simpsons was on. You know, so I went to Syracuse, the Newhouse School of Communications 
uh, to major in television writing. Um, and my sister um, did not want to do any of that. But then she took a summer class with a guy by the name of Professor Robert Thompson, who was my favorite professor at Syracuse. And he also coincidentally happened to be the favorite professor of Mick Foley at Cortland University. It was right before, you know, he came to Syracuse. So we'd go into his office. He tried to cold call Mick for us. <laughs> Who probably talking. picked up and was like regular <laughs> classic Mick. Always yeah. sweet. So like all of that came together when, you know, my sister was interning at MTV, an internship my uncle had helped her get. She was at MTV. My uncle and myself eventually were writing on Jenny McCarthy, NBC show at Jenny coming from MTV. And that's, yeah, my sister, you know, she's the one who gave me the call and said, they needed a writer for these WWF specials for SummerSlam 99. Are you available? Can you write some samples and see if you can get hired? And that's what I did. So crazy. And that's when you met Dwayne for the first time, right? He was one of the guests and he kind of gave the nudge of like, hey, do you want to come maybe do this? And then they actually followed up. Exactly. Yeah, that was one of those things where uh, I was not looking at anything other at all than these five shows for MTV and then go back to Hollywood. Like the idea of writing for WWE, like it wasn't like, do they even have writers? Like right. I have no idea. There's no uh, credits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What was some of the conversations that you were having with your uncle during that time, which I imagine was a pretty, obviously a very important uh, time in your career of deciding like, okay, I'm going to go and work for WWE. But I guess like the rap that WWE gets amongst like the writing and entertainment community at the time. Yeah, well, my uncle's always, you know, he's always been very supportive. He's also always been very pragmatic. Um, and the fact of the matter is, after Jenny got canceled, uh, my writing partner and I were, you know, out of work for like almost a year, um, if not maybe even a little more. Now, granted, we were writing our spec scripts and going on meetings and having a lot of almost got hired. Love a good thing. meeting. Give me that yeah, free water bottle, baby. <laughs> yeah, WWE is, is you know, the, the McDonald's of meetings, if that makes sense. <laughs> they just are the standard bearers. But yeah, like this was the opportunity, you know, when, when all is said and done and I, you really I truly had a decision to make of like on the one hand, you're leaving Hollywood and not so much leaving Hollywood, but leaving you know, the established writer's path, you know, like WWE is not affiliated with the WGA. So mm -hmm. uh, the Writers Guild. So it's, it's you know, a different animal entirely. Um, and on the one hand, it's like, yeah, there's that. There's, you know, you're moving off the grid back to the East Coast. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the way I looked at it, it was like, you're, you're going to a show that, you know, the product you really, really love and feel like pretty comfortable you know, in that environment, as far as like knowing all the characters and having a fandom and also a security in knowing the show is not going off the air. Yeah. You know, if you're successful here, you could be here. I never thought it would be like 16 years, but every <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, I could be here for a year or two, tell some good stories afterwards and then just move back to California if need be. If only we thought that it worked that way. Right. Just pop in for a quick minute. Psych. Fucking decade later, you're like, oh. Okay. What Al Bundy said before he started working at the shoe store. You know? <laughs> yeah. It has health insurance and, you know, all that type of stuff. So, yeah, it was appealing. I find, I mean, I've always found this fascinating. And you talk about it in the book about 
how you can be the head writer of Raw, of SmackDown. You know, you, you're working on the show that just constantly has these amazing ratings. It's notoriously chaotic. You're working under these like insane confines. And that just doesn't translate into the into like the into the Hollywood world. Why is that that those credits don't really carry over? I don't get it. I don't get it either. Um, I mean, maybe it's the whole like WGA and no credits thing because they don't know you. Um, but also, you know, and I'd like to think that it has gotten a little bit better since. I have no idea of knowing if that's the case or not. It has to. I mean, obviously, with the success of The Rock, of Cena, of what the Bella Twins have been able to do, like, I think even just from like, that from Batista, from that standpoint, I think definitely opening the eyes because every time you step on a set away from WWE, people are like, wow, look at you go. You can do all of these different jobs and you're on time and you're polite and all of those things. Um, I always feel like people are kind of caught off guard by, I guess, the work ethic that you you garner over your time of working in WWE as well. Yeah, I mean, it really does provide you with a great work ethic if you didn't already have it having it be so encompassing in your life 24 seven. Um, but yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, and I, I wrote about it to an extent, but like, as far as Hollywood is concerned, you might as well be working at like Ace Hardware or something like that. Right. You know, it's like, crazy. It's upsetting. It's really upsetting to me. I hate it. I, I don't like it either. And it's also like a little like, you know, obviously it's, it's a little disrespectful as far as like, no, this isn't, you know, if you're not a wrestling fan, because I've, I've heard this joke a million times as a wrestling writer, everyone always says the same thing, which is, you mean it's scripted? You know, that kind of thing. And that's that's an a, a level like, OK, that's a nice little let's okay, get an icebreaker, what have you. That's fine. But then the insulting follow up question, which maybe, you know, a third of the people do afterwards is like, you're right. What do you write? Garg, you know, and holding a chair like, no, it's a little bit more nuanced than, you know, a monosyllabic, you know, ogre saying grog. And, and, you know, some stereotypes are hard to shake. I mean, if you're, if you know nothing of the world at all, it's like, oh, well, he was a quote unquote writer, but not a real writer. He didn't write on sister, sister. <laughs> That's so fucked up. It's the first show that came to my mind for some reason. It's a good show. Sister, sister. <laughs> I could sing the whole song, but I'm not going to. Um, who's someone now that you wish that you could kind of get your hands on and run through some promos with and and be uh be their head writer you know the women's division is you know completely different now um than it was back then as far as like not so much even the individual talents because there was a lot of talented people back when i worked there but the opportunities were not yeah, there exactly and, and the way you know i remember you know there would be like the women, like like Trish and Victoria and Mickey, like and Melina, they they want to do steel cage matches and ladder matches. And you know, the prevailing thought at the time was like, well, does the audience really want to see women do that type of thing? And like, uh, I kind of think they do, but <laughs> yeah, they, that wasn't what was you know. Um, it was like, no, it's a, they want it to be like you know, let up and you know, take your mind off of the your troubles and whatever you know rationale for it. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah. I mean, like when I watch the women's division now, I see people, I mean, I got like a, a small taste of it working with Becky, um, you know, uh, on, on that SmackDown, but yeah, the, the people, um, the talent involved right now between, you know, just again, like Bailey and her group, 
Her as a heel too. Bailey as a as a heel is just fantastic. Totally. Um, you know, Zelina Vega. Like, oh, you see, there's and there's so many people. I'm forgetting, and and you know, and, and Sasha and Naomi, and hopefully, you know, hopefully something can be worked out, and they come back. It's like a whole different landscape that I never really got to experience as far as the match of talent plus opportunity, as you mentioned. That wasn't really a thing back then. The talent, yes. The opportunity, no. So that would be something that, you know, would be great to work towards. How different do you imagine it is right now having Hunter at the head of creative, having all of these changes? I mean, I'm certainly like on the outside being like, what's happening? Like everything is turned upside down. The tea is piping hot, as we say. Um, But with Hunter now as the head of creative and it seems like almost immediately there's already this like, oh, What's happening on the show? Who's coming back? What's happening? Um, there's something really interesting about that to me for sure. But what do you think um, the future is going to look like with Hunter at the head? I mean, I think it's fascinating. It really is. And I don't like I know people like throw these superlatives out like, oh, it's so interesting. And, and who knows? It, it truly, truly is. Yeah, you can't downplay the point of like the sole funnel of everything from a walk to the ring to a graphic and everything being funneled through one person, in this case, Vince no longer being there. Um, and now it's like a completely open-ended thing. You know, the irony, of course, is like, if in 2002, you said Triple H is going to be head of creative, people would be running for the hills, not because of his creative mind, but the fact that there was just a, you know, innate conflict of interest as far as being a character on the show versus writing the show. And it's always going to be, well, how does it affect my character? Even if you're really trying not to see it that way, he's no longer a character on the show. And he has seen and learned, you know, from Vince for good and for bad. You know, he he's a loyal as anyone who would say, you know what? Okay. For you, for the sake of this company, I will simulate sex with a mannequin <laughs> in a basket during the last funeral. Um, I don't like it. The line in your book, by the way, of like the Macy's Day parade that was like the same week as like the sex scene, whatever. <laughs> Yeah. We're, we're Just a little bit of everything people. for everybody, you know, <laughs> smiles on faces. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he has, he has learned so much. He already knew so much going in because he's just a, you know, a diehard fan and not just of like, not like me, like, like WWF, you know, WWE through and through. He was 1981 NWA, Harley race, Kowalski. So I think he's taken you know, I guess just again, just based on the shows that I've seen going back to that stuff, but also having been in WWE long enough to recognize the value of entertainment. And, you know, and if you're just going to do it like one specific, you do have to have a little bit of that variety for everybody. It it is, you know, in terms of like having a different person at the helm, it's just going to change the show. But for me, and one of the things like, you know, this from experience things in WWE production meetings, but for me, like my biggest, my biggest enemy at WWE every year consistently was not any of the talent, was not any of the office. It was the clock. You know, sometimes these production meetings end so late, but the show is are starting in literally hours, if not less. Oh, we would start the show without a show. It's happened. It's stressful as all hell. And from a writing during the week standpoint, you know, Vince, um, it was so, so busy with 
everything that a CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation should be busy with that, you know, when you finally, you know, you, you'd have these meetings that would get scheduled for noon, get pushed to three, get pushed to five, get pushed to eight. I guess we're going home. Nope. We're meeting at 11, you know, like that kind of thing. Fortunately, like the, the late night ones didn't happen all that much when I was there, but the sitting around part happened a lot. But with Hunter having, uh, you know, and not that, you know, talent relations is not a full-time job in and of itself because it is, but with having hopefully significantly less responsibility from a corporate standpoint that Vince did as the CEO, um, that's so key because if you can now meet with Paul during the week and not necessarily just have to focus on the main event stuff, crossover segment or the opening segment, but really dig into it and get into long-term storylines and all the characters, and he has that time to give to it, that's going to result in a lot of positive changes. What is your take on a company like AEW not having a writer's room and not having writers to lean on? I really don't know like what the structure is. I don't know how um, Tony does it as far as does he does everyone get a blank piece of paper uh, determining like here are the segments now go do it. Is there kind of creative guidance? I know obviously it's very talent friendly, you know, when it comes to giving them their creative space to go out and do their thing. Um, I think there needs, you know, in my opinion, there needs to be at least some kind of direction to be given. <laughs> so people aren't repeating themselves and people aren't doing something that someone else is planning on doing later and that kind of thing. Also, just some people aren't great promos. and There's nothing wrong with that. It's like learning that skill and being able to work with somebody that can help to kind of like shape a promo and put some stuff together. Like some people need more of that. I saw your husband with the shopping cart going down as Dean Ambrose going. I could, I could see his soul. I don't know him very well, but I could see the soul leaving his body. Mm-hmm. I could watch it and go, oh, my God, he hates this. And he kind of should hate this because this is him. I could tell. Uh, and now, you know, in AEW, it's like you could tell, like, I'm home. Yeah. This is where I should be. For some people, that's like perfect. As you were alluding to, some people like that collaboration, like have someone to work off of. I don't think anybody in either company likes to be handed a sheet of paper and say, go do it. And get this line in, this word specifically. You have to mention sauerkraut because (laughs) Vince loves sauerkraut. Like, no, but what does that have to do with anything? Um, So, yeah, I think as long as as long as there's some structure and nobody's stepping on each other and there's, you know, like I can't. AW is really, really successful. When we launch a show at seven bucks, you know, we look at the cable ratings. You know, we're always hoping to be, you know, ranked at a certain, you know, as high as possible. You can make the comparison of like, oh, well, compared to like 1998 and WCW, look how low it is. No one's watching it. Like, yes, they are ranked. You know how many shows would kill to be in the top five or top three of the 18 to 49s on cable every single week. So they're doing something right for sure. Let's talk a little seven bucks. Like how, or I guess let's talk about your relationship with Dwayne first, about how you guys really developed this rapport with each other to now go on to all these amazing ventures that you guys have together. Dwayne's MO has always been, I don't know who you are. I've never met you, but let's see what you got because I have nothing to lose. You know, if what you say is good, then great. I benefit. If what you say is bad, well, I'm still 
the rock. (laughs) But if you could, if you could enhance or help in some way, then great. And that's kind of like, that was the basis of our, you know, working relationship with WWE because, you know, I did certainly did not invent the rock by any stretch. The rock was already a WrestleMania main eventer. By the time I got there, you come to the table and you produce and success begets more success and it leads to more trust and it leads to wanting to work with someone again. And that's really like the basis of not only my relationship with, with the rock and Dwayne, but like a lot of people, you notice he'll, he'll work with directors over and over again that he trusts with. He'll work with Kevin Hart and other actors over again. He'll work with, you know, Bo Flynn is one of our, you know, producers on many, many um, rocks movies. He likes working with Bo over and over again. Uh, same thing, you know, Hiram Garcia, president of seven bucks, uh, Danny's younger brother works on every movie with Dwayne. So like once you get into that circle of trust and, and establish that like, hey, this is we're on the same wavelength. We, we don't have to agree on everything, but we'll hear each other out. You know, that's really the foundation of a, of a great like working relationship and friendship. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's so cool to see um, all the things that you guys have done and that you continue to do, which brings me to you being back working with the XFL, baby. Can you believe that the XFL has been such a constant threat in your life? Um, No, (laughs) there is a chapter dedicated to the XFL, as you know, 2001 XFL. What would my cheerleader line have been? I'm a blank by day, but an XFL cheerleader by night. Your Canadian origin? Oh, yeah. I'll do the the most offensive, stereotypical, like, I'm a moose hunter by day, <laughs> but at night, I'm an XFL cheerleader. <laughs> That's what I assume what Canadians just do in their spare time. Yeah, something like that. We're usually out just trying to catch a moose in, in nature. Uh, but yeah, just the lines that you guys were putting together for these cheerleaders, trying to give them their, their personalities on camera, trying to just, like, figure out what the XFL was at this time, this new rules, this like edgy side of the sport to now what the XFL is going to be. And I think the 2020 version of the XFL made a lot of great strides. You know, it was definitely the, we have to make this, you know, entertaining like the WWE is entertaining. Um, You know, might've been a fair idea on paper back in 2001, but it was that and the really subpar football play um, and a myriad of, you know, ton of other problems has been well documented, um, you know, kind of sunk that. It was very surreal to be on that plane celebrating that first night rating of the X. <laughs> yeah. Such babes in the woods, having no idea that, you know, the the price is right mountain climber, you know, that then falls off if you bid too high. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was surely coming. But yeah, it was funny. Uh, you know, we had our XFL fun in 2001. Fun, I call it. Other people would not call it that. And then, you know, for me, it was out of sight, out of mind. And then I saw there was a a call on on our, you know, our outlook on our calendar saying that, like, Danny Garcia wants to have a conversation about the XFL. And when I saw it, I like I called one of, uh, you know, the members of our team who put the meeting together. And I'm like, I think you guys messed up. I think you mean NXT. We're doing something with NXT. And then she's like, no, the XFL. It's right. You know, Danny, Danny are purchasing the XFL and it's back into my life personally. But, you know, as terrifying as that sounds based on my 2001 experience, I know that this is, this is essentially an entirely different animal and they have like so much passion 
and knowledge of what to do, what not to do. You already see it in its you know early phases and everything and the social media and how they're doing all the training camps. That's the best thing, I think, about the 2001 XFL is that it provided a blueprint of how not to start <laughs> a football yeah. league. We're in the red over here. Let's bring it back the other side, see what yeah. we can do. Um, what is it like working with Danny Garcia? Because she seems fascinating to me. She is like the epitome of being like a real boss bitch. People are going to say, oh, my God, he's saying that because he's of their employee or whatever. But she is legitimately the smartest person I've ever encountered or known. She just has an approach to everything that like in WWE, a lot of it is very knee jerk and very reactionary. And they're like, well, that's an idea. Well, what do you got? Okay, well, I do, you know, and her approach to business, to relationships, to everything she does is just so elevated and so like Yoda-esque isn't a word exactly. It's just like, I never would have thought of it that way. I need more friends like that. Yes, we all do. Because (laughs) my reaction to things, especially at WWE, was like, well, that's stupid. What's stupid about it? I don't know. You're stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it can get like that real quick. You're like, I don't know. I hate this. I hate you. Leave me alone. Well, you got anything else? No. Well, then shut up. <laughs> no, just her worldview is uh, uh, her like superpower of seeing the big picture and nurturing people and making people feel valued and respected and everything. It, it's such a it's such a key and such a great, um, you know, great attribute to have as a not only as a boss, but as a human being. Yeah, she sounds absolutely incredible. Um, Dark Side of the Ring, for you guys to be pairing with them. Uh, Seven Bucks pairing up with Dark Side of the Ring, doing Dark Side of the Territories. Give me a little rundown on what's going on with that, because I'm a huge Dark Side of the Ring fan, as I think uh, you know anyone from the wrestling business is. Even friends of mine that don't know about wrestling, I'm like, okay, if you don't know about wrestling, go and like just watch a little bit of this, because if you aren't interested in that, come on. It's juicy. Yeah, no, it's... I mean, look, this show um, originated due to the fact that Dwayne was a big fan of Dark Side of the Ring and would post about it. And when someone with 300 plus million followers, you know, it reads a post that gets attention. Uh, and when I saw the post, even though I'm not on Instagram, I probably should be. Yeah, I know. I tried to tag you for your book and I was like, mm, I don't think he's on I know. Here. I'm sorry. Twitter. I'm, I, yeah, I did you're that. on Twitter. I got, the, I got the Twitter. That was a Danny thing. It's a lot of Mets content on there, though. But Well, I mean, this is okay. the way to do it. <laughs> um, and yeah, when, when we started full time at seven bucks, like Danny said to me, like, look, you, you should have a social media presence. I know that wasn't the thing in WWE, um, Instagram or Twitter. You should probably pick one of them. And knowing you, you'd probably like Twitter a lot more than Instagram. We need more Brian Gowart selfies. Get them out there. Oh, my God. Yeah. That picture <laughs> section in the book, by the way, that was a struggle to find pictures. <laughs> um, so dark side, I noticed the, the the post and was like, I like that show too. And then Dwayne was like, well, you should meet with those guys, do a general with Evan and Jason, uh, the creators of that show. And we did. They're great dudes. They, they, they really are. They're, they're such passionate fans and, and quality filmmakers and, and, you know, dr- truth tellers and that type of thing. But here's the thing, one thing, the one thing I want to go back and, and not correct you, but, but set the record straight is that, we very much didn't want this to be a dark side of anything. Oh, did I say that? It's not dark side. It's actually Tales from the Territories. Tales from the Territories. My bad. My bad. It's Tales from the Territories. And specifically because when talking with Dwayne about it, he was like, look, they're great at that show, but they've done it. In my experience, there's dark stories. There's light stories. There's 
batshit crazy insane stories that he experienced firsthand by you know by by being on the road and in various territories growing up as a kid with his with his dad and just you know hearing secondhand accounts and firsthand accounts um so he's like if you guys meet if you guys you know meet together let's come up with something that like really captures that wild west period of time uh and that's what we ended up coming up with is like let's you guys handle the dark side stuff i know vice tv loves like you know they have a ton of dark side but we really want to go in a just like crazy insane wild and and outrageous side plenty of those stories cutting off michael hayes ponytail let's get that in there (laughs) well that's yeah that could that should be its own uh sitcom (laughs) yeah Football fans, check out the Three and Out podcast with John Middlecoff only on the Volume Podcast Network. John brings his unique perspective as an ex-NFL scout to the Volume to break down all the news around the NFL and college football. Whether you're looking for game predictions, coaching searches, the ins and outs of the NFL front office, even an occasional golf tip, John has you covered. Download Three and Out with John Middlecoff, only on the Volume Podcast Network. Um, Okay, what were the things that you were seeing um, throughout the duration of your career that made your brain start firing off like this? Of how can I better myself? How can I help other people? Um, What really was like the seed that started all this for you? Really myself first. You guys got to remember, I tried wrestling when I was 23. It didn't work out. I had three matches. I sucked. I hurt my knee. And I got in the nightclub business and boozed the broads in the party, took me in a different spot. But I came back to it as a manager to color commentator, mainly because Jake the Snake Roberts came in my club and we just hit it off. And then he, I didn't make him pay for anything. And Ted DiBiase came. Here's a picture of Ted DiBiase and bringing the million dollar uh, and uh, Luke the Bushwhacker. Oh, my gosh. He put that picture up on his Facebook, you know, saying DDP before he was DDP. Later that night, me and Ted do it upside down to kill. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Look at that head of hair on you. Um, Look at you go. Crazy. Um, Love that. But, you know, starting as a wrestling manager and lucky enough to be getting that break. And then then I went to Florida and I'm still running my nightclub because, you know, the first three and a half years I made nothing. It cost me money to be DDP. Um, But once I got the opportunity to go to Florida Championship Wrestling, I met Dusty Rhodes and the dream man. He he took me. uh, This this is one of my favorite pictures of me and him. We're at a Willie Nelson concert. That's a great photo. Uh, I love I loved him so much. Uh, Mm -hmm. Later that night, he gets up and he's playing with Willie. Of course he was. Of course he (laughs) He was. He wouldn't get off the stage. He's up there for like 10 songs. (laughs) uh, Play September songs, baby. You know that. So uh, um, we developed a real relationship, you know, and I tell people all the time, it's not about who you know. It's not about networking. It's about building real relationships. It's about, you know, who's willing to say they know you, who's willing to pick up the phone, make a call for you, uh, put their name on the line for you. Dusty did that for me, like over and over again. And uh, that's why I was lucky enough to be where I am today without Dusty Rhodes. I, I don't feel there is a Diamond Dallas Page without Jake the Snake Roberts. There's no three-time world champion. So at some point becoming, they wouldn't let me manage anymore because 
the hair and the clothes and the bling and the dolls and the wrap. They're like, you're too loud. Wow. You're taking away from the wrestlers. Too, Let's get you in there. I was too over <laughs> the top of professional wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think that's a compliment. Cheers. <laughs> so at 35 and a half, Renee, I started training to be a wrestler. I had seven months left of my contract. Dusty told me I was crazy everybody because they liked me in the office they liked me doing color commentating i was fourth string but dusty really liked me and I, I was learning so much about behind the scenes but that's not where i wanted to be so i i started on that power plant and day one i was icing my knees and my back and everybody thought i was crazy i mean i, I did I, i'm the first guy to do weekly deep muscle massage therapy chiropractic applied kinesiology i am the first one by 20 plus years to even know what cold press organic juice was where were you learning about this from like how did you have such an edge on everybody i first of all i, I was reading at a third grade level at the age of 30 and I had just dyslexic and, and you know ADD. Still have it today, but I'm much better reader today, uh, writer, etc. But back then, I would ask a million questions, you know. And I had a sixth sense, you know, of healing myself. Michael P.S. Hayes. When I told Michael, you know, because I was managing the Freebirds and those guys, you, he, those are, you know, Michael. He's like the biggest. There's these guys were the biggest rivers of all time. The day they heard that I lost, you know, my job as a manager, I'm not going to manage Scott Hall anymore, the Diamond Stud. I'm not going to manage the Freebirds. And, and they came towards me so empathetically. I couldn't believe it. They were like, listen, D, we're so sorry. They were so genuinely caring for, you know, me, you know, losing this position. And then I said, don't worry about it, guys. I'm good. I got seven months left to my contract. I'm going to learn how to wrestle. They looked at each other and burst out laughing. Michael fell down laughing, you know, like it was like, that was what everybody thought. So the main thing I knew, because I was an athlete my whole life, I was an athlete. I'm willing to put the work in, not just to learn how to play basketball, to play basketball all the time. What can I do to rehab myself so I don't get injured? And that's what I took into uh, wrestling. I wasn't just there to learn how to wrestle or cut a better promo. I was there to, how do I keep going? I'm 35 and a half. An example of Jake the Snake Roberts, we're out one night and we're in a bar, you know, we're having some drinks and he popped a pill in his mouth and chewed it up and swallowed it. I said, did you just chew up a Percocet? He said, yeah. I go, why would you do that? They taste horrible. And he said, well, when you chew on something, it goes right to your brain. I go, yeah, but you've got a few of those. How many? He goes, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, you know, 12, 14, 15. Who knows how many he was taking back then? And I said, why are you taking so many? And he said, because they lose their potency over time. So for me, it was like, man, I'm 36, 37 years old at the time. I'm like, I need those things to work. So I only took them. I'm not ever going to say I never took them recreationally. But if I did, it was one. You know, bottom line is I was not going to make that my crutch. 
because I needed them to work. My career didn't take off till I was 40, you know? So my whole run, when people go, oh my God, the run you had was between 40 and 46. I mean, I know that, you know, obviously everyone knows that and it's like a familiar story, but I think me being uh, 36 now and thinking about that, like, I think a lot of people start to feel at a certain point, like, oh, it's too late to start doing this new thing or I'm already this one thing. How can I move in and do this other thing? I think it's like incredibly admirable, admirable to have started your in-ring career really at that point in time. Like, obviously not an easy thing to do. You've got the free birds laughing at you. You've got people doubting you. Were you ever doubting yourself with this choice? We did a documentary um, about, um, of course, we did The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. Have you ever gotten a chance to see that? I have, yeah. Yeah, that's super powerful. We did another one called Relentless. And Relentless is for me blowing my back out to where we are today. You'll see points in this where, because you know, Steve, who's my business partner, we filmed... We had 18 years of film, of film footage. So there's times where I really, you know, doubt, you know, doubt myself, but I don't stay there long. Everyone second guesses themselves or doubts themselves. The people who make it are the people who say, okay, stop feeling sorry for yourself. How do we get to the next level? You know, and you can't stay there. What I have found, Renee, in my life, and I've lived five lives, you know, I mean, I really, God has really blessed me, but I have found that every time, and take death out of the equation, everything that was the worst thing to happen to me, everything has been the best thing to happen to me. Isn't that always crazy when you're in that moment and you think you're rock bottom, you think there's no way I'm going to be, I'm going to pull myself out of this or things are going to get better and the tide's going to change. And then that's when new magical shit starts to happen. It's like after a fire and the forest starts to regrow again. Right. It's really, but if you pull yourself down, I call it emotional gravity. Like nobody can pull you down more than you. No one can stress you out. No one can worry you into a tailspin like you can. I I speak about this all the time. Cornell did a study, and they followed a large group of people for an extended period of time. And they were, it was all about worrying, people's worries. And what they found out by this two-year study that they did, 80 Five percent of the things we worry about never happen. Of the 15 percent that was left over, 79 percent of those people whose worries came to fruition handled them way better than ever thought they were going to. And a lot of them said they were glad it happened because they learned something so important, you know, and and that was going to help them like life changing things. So 97% of the things we worry about never happen. You see, I know that, you know, it's kind of like this, this bottle right here. If I hold it out here for 30 seconds, it's not a big deal. But if I hold it out longer and longer, my arm's going to begin to hurt. If I hold it out here for a day, 
My arm's going to get numb and feel paralyzed. That's what holding on to worrying about thing is. If you just think about it for a second or two, hey, it's not a big deal. But if you think about it longer, it starts to really affect you and bother you and hurt you. And if you hold on to it for that day and it becomes worse than the next day, you literally paralyze yourself. Like all you got to do is remember sometimes, put the bottle down. Put it down. Yeah. Put it down. <laughs> Put the bottle there. Okay, how the hell did you get so smart and so educated in so many different areas when moments ago you just said when you were 30, you had a third grade reading level? How the hell do you overcome that to now be a man that's been able to obtain all of this knowledge? You're speaking to other people. You're like working in all these different areas of of health and helping so many other people. How did you overcome that? Being a people person, a nightclub guy, I could adapt. You know, Muhammad Ali was dyslexic. Jay Leno is dyslexic. Tom Cruise is dyslexic. Somehow you find a way around it. For me, at some point, I couldn't read Tony Robbins' books, but I could listen to those 20 cassette tapes he used to have. And there was a lot of things that, that, that he said that I still apply today. I learned a lot from listening. I was 31 at the time. And I knew I wanted, you know, even though I was in a nightclub business, wrestling was not a part of it yet. But I knew that I was going to have, you know, if I wanted to be, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be involved in acting. I didn't know where it was going to go or how it was going to go down. Which you have a lot of acting credits, by the way. Holy moly. (laughs) I was like looking it up. I was like, damn, look at you go. Booked and busy. You know, just, it just being a part of something that I love doing, but I had to learn how to read. So I'll never forget my first ex-wife, who is best friends with me today. She owns part of DDPY. Her, her, and my wife love each other. That's like cool. they, there's a picture at our wedding, Pedro Mine's wedding, and she's there with Aaron, who I love like a brother, <laughs> uh, and, and they're both crying and. Uh, Paige is thanking Kimberly for raising me, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's funny. But um, she's a Mensa. She's got 151 IQ. Uh, she graduated with her nor- her degree, uh, her master's degree from Northwestern at 21. Wow. Um, so one day she said, send me. we were going to the movies or something. She goes, look, read, read whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know? And at that point I was like practicing, trying to read out loud. And when I was trying to read it, she goes, stop screwing around and read it. I go, I'm trying. And she's the one who said to me, Oh my God, you're dyslexic. I go, what's that? You know? And when we went to LA, uh, I'd run into a friend of mine surfing and uh, we just went to lunch and we just started talking about um, just life in general. And at some point I said, about dyslexia, you so am I. He goes, you've got to go to the Eris Learning Center. Now I'm 48 at the time. He said, I've got to go to Eris Learning Center. There's this woman, Rose, if she's there, you want her. When he was with her five years earlier, she was 81. Okay. And the Everest Learning Centers in Culver City, California, 
It's one of the suburbs of LA. It's you know right off the beach, mm-hmm. and um, they teach kids and adults with learning disabilities. So I went to see her. She was eighty six, still working there. Oh my gosh! She, <laughs> Good she, for her. Every Monday I would be home if I went away for the weekend or something. And every Friday I'd leave. So every Monday and Thursday, I went there for six months. She said by the, by the second month, she said, I took home more homework than anyone she'd ever seen before. And you have to understand, I've never done homework. Right. I got other people to do it for me, you know, or took the F and skated through school how? Because teachers like me, you know, and I would be I would be involved when it was verbal, when it came to reading as a little kid just trying to read. And, you know, how brutal little kids are. Oh, my God, the worst. Laughing at you. You know, I just would hit the kid in front of me before it was my turn to get sent to the principal's office. You know, that was one of my ways <laughs> out of it. a tactic, yeah. Right. Or I can't see the, the board. My I, I can't see it. I can't, my, you know, I, I get headaches. You know, whatever you, you make up to get around it. But I'll tell you what, it made me incredibly, I also was a broken family, so I bounced around from one family to another. Those yeah, you were things, raised by your dad for a while, right? For a little while, I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't call it raised. I would say You're hanging around with him. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was hanging out with him when he was, you know, occasionally when he would be back at the house. I was with aunts and uncles and you know, family members, uh, and yeah, I bounced around like a pinball. I'm not bitter about any of that stuff because when I look back at it, I am the most adaptable human being alive. I can, I literally, and I talk about this, I can be with a, a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company one day, or I could be riding motorcycles with Chuck Zito the next. And Chuck, was, as you know, he's, he was the president of the New York chapter Hell's Angels for 25 <laughs> years. And he's a good friend of mine. He's yeah. a good friend of mine. Young, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it doesn't matter. Just, I, I take things as they come and I don't hold something I learned long, long time ago. Like some of my, you know, friends who are really close to me, like, how can you forgive that person? How can you forgive them? And I never really, I said, cause I'm not holding on to that. I'm just not holding, you know, it's the same. Sometimes you got to put the bottle down, you know, but, but I heard this and it became mine. As soon as I heard that holding on to anger, holding on to like hatred or just disliking someone so much or whatever the thing is you're holding on to, it's like you swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. Yes, I I, I love that phrase. It's so true. Yeah, I, I've heard, I've seen that, like it, whether it was on an Instagram post or someone's t-shirt or whatever, and I was like, oh, that's a good one. Write that one down. Jake and I do our podcast, DDP Snake Pit, and When I first, if you look at that first scene of me seeing Jake for the first time in a long, many, many years, and he's in this little hobble of a house and he's 300 pounds and he can't barely walk around and can't get up or sit down and, and talking to him and the, and the shit that came out of his mouth, like me and Steve, you, who's, Probably this hardest working, smartest human being I know. That's my business partner, Steve Yu. Uh, 
He said, so what do you think? Because he was filming everything. And I said, I don't think I will ever be able to have a real conversation with my brother again. I, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to do it. And then once he got sober, and on the way there, it was still bad. It got to a point on the way to getting sober, I would he would just say things and like around like one of my daughters or something, you know. And and I'd look at him, I go, yo, Jake, whatever you're thinking of saying, don't like just <laughs> no, say the opposite. Oh, okay. Say the opposite. <laughs> okay. You know? And um the bottom line is once he got sober. And he fell a couple of times those first two years, but it was like just for a day. But the last six years, he has been stone cold sober. It's amazing to me. And he heard me say that somewhere in the podcast early on. And then a couple of podcasts ago, he said that exact quote about holding on to anger and, and and then he said you know it's like swallowing poison expect the other person to die and i thought oh my god that's amazing yeah 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 never know whose ears are open and like hearing those things i mean yeah for anyone that's not been able to watch that documentary i mean i feel like that really kind of sums up to a, a you know the the biggest degree of what you do of being able to help people from helping Jake Roberts um to helping big cast he was living at your house for a while you helped him big time when he was going through we talked about that I had him on the podcast a while ago um to even having on uh, Paul Walter Hauser I talked to him when he was spending some time with you as well where did that all start for you from really wanting to extend that olive branch to so many people to to bring them literally into your own house to help people out well, I got to give the credit to Steve You, You know, Steve is, Steve is Cornell graduate, was recruited by IBM. Was He'd probably be running IBM right now if he would have stayed. And he left probably 20 years, you know, after he was there for eight years, he left because it's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to inspire people. And one day he walked up to me in LaGuardia Airport. That's where I met my wife, Paige, too. Really? At the airport. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, the airport's been really good to me. Uh, <laughs> but um, It's one thing a life on the road will get you, right? At least you point right. some good relationships out of it. Because <laughs> uh, I hate traveling at this point. You, you yeah. know how much we travel. It's, oh, my God. Uh, honestly, uh, I'm like, I'm happy in my little corner here. <laughs> so um, he'd come up to me and said, he just said, hey, Diamond Ellis Page. I'm like, yeah. He goes, man, I, I watched your, your career. You had a great career. He said, uh, he goes, but I really love what you're doing today. And I go, what do you know about what I'm doing today? And he had seen something, someone I'd helped. He goes, I'm filming this documentary called Inspired the Movie. And uh, I would love to follow you with someone. And the first two guys didn't work out because, you know, guys start and stop. It's just the way it's like, the, it's just life. But then Arthur Borman came into my life. And what's really amazing, it, it equally as inspiring, the Resurrection of Jake the Snake is one of the most inspiring documentary series out oh, there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, equally as inspiring is uh, Relentless because it's everything that I've done over the last 20 years and Stone Cold Steve's Austin's in it and, um, and different guys that went through this journey with me. 
Like Steve thought I was nuts when I started this whole DDPY thing. You know, he didn't want to see me invest all my money. And that's what I did. I was $548,000 in before I made a dime. So Steve, you and I, we decided to let's just rebrand the company, stop calling it YRG, which was yoga for regular guys. Let's just call it DDP yoga and let's, Let's just rebrand it, reface it. And he came in as one of my partners, really smart guy. And at some point, I told him, I said, Jake saw the video of Arthur Borman, the disabled veteran. And he was blown away. He said he'll try to do the program. And he said, Jake who? I go, Jake the Snake Roberts. He goes, you know Jake the Snake. <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> we, we never talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he had seen what, you know, where Jake was at because it was everywhere. It was all over the internet. You know, you couldn't hide from the really, really bad video footage that was out there of him. And um, he's like, God, can you imagine if you moved him in your house? Because I was moving to L.A. and I bought this house. And I went, well, you know, he don't have to live with me because he did live with me 20 years before that. And he lost a 12-foot black cobra in my house. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. no. Yeah, and Jake, no. Was, Jake was high maintenance back then, you know, high maintenance. And I'm like, man, I don't know. He goes, yeah, but imagine if he's around me and you. And back then, my company was like four people. You know, now it's like 24, you know, but back then it was four people, you know, and we all worked at my house. He goes, can you imagine if he's around us, though, you know, with all the, the positive energy? And, and I went, all right, but I got to make him lose 20 pounds on his own first. He's got it. He's got it. I never eat. I don't care who it is. And Jake already did a lot for me, but he had to do something on his own. Everybody knows who Josh Brolin is, right? The actor. Of course. When we did the resurrection of Jake the Snake, um, the guy who came in as one of our executive producers, a guy named Chris Bell. And Chris Bell did Bigger, Stronger, Faster. He did a lot of, you know, he's done a lot of cool documentaries. Well, him and Josh are friends. So he gave him, Josh Brolin, the Jake's documentary to uh, take a look at it and see what he thought. And he sent him this text, and I've kept it forever. He writes, Chris, just watch the documentary, and I'm in stunned silence. Wow. A happy ending. And then he put in parentheses, because he's an addict as well. Or at least until now, question mark. Wow, DDP, what an amazing guy. A real man. Thank you so much. For turning me on to that. A great story of hope and love and real compassion. I needed to see that. Wow. That's so amazing. That's so cool. You never know who's watching things and seeing things. It's it's really incredible. I love that. Very, very cool. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about before I let you go, Ric Flair's last match. You were there. You got to be on hand for that. I, I actually, I saw you from a very far distance in Nashville. Um, what did you think? How did you, what did you think of the entire event? 
Well, I thought it was a great event for guy because Rick Rick had the greatest send off ever. <laughs> <I know. laughs> when he left the WWE. <laughs> But you know what? He's Ric Flair. And Rick actually called me and asked me if I would be in the match with him. Do like a, a six man. And I'm like, at first person he said, D, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> I go, 66. He goes, I've seen you. You're in you're you're in great shape. He goes, I I'd really love to have you be in this match. I go, Rick, I can't do it, man. I feel so good. I can't take a chance of hurting myself. He goes, I feel great. I go, you're not from this planet. You know? <laughs> and that and that's when he talked to me into doing the roast. And I'll tell you, I would only do it for him. And I'm not a roast guy. I'm not a <laughs> yeah, yeah. I came up with some things, some friends of mine, Paul Walter Hauser was one of them who wrote me uh you know, who's one of the great, great. Oh, he's such a great human being. I love that guy. He's awesome. His new show, Blackbird, by the way, on Apple Plus, if you guys aren't watching it, is very, very good. He's so believable in it. The guy's got to win an Oscar at some no, point. He like will. everything I see him in, he is just like breathtaking. Did you see him in uh in um Cruella? I did. Oh my god. They he had to audition for that because they didn't believe he could do the Cockney accent. They were like, You're perfect. <laughs> yeah. like, this cat spent eight weeks with me to lose forty pounds. He was telling that. me. Yep. It was amazing. We got we've gotten to know each other. We talk all the time, He's but cool he wrote guy. me a, a, a one or two of the jokes. I I was written stuff that I'm like, I'm not saying that about Rick. You know. <laughs> Me and Rick, we had conflict in, in, in our careers. And I was just trying to get him get his respect, you know. But you know, bottom line is we did and, and there was times where we said about shit about each other and back and forth. And I right after I saw the big balloon drop, you know, 14 years ago, I'm like, God, I love Ric Flair too. You know, and, and the next the next weekend we were both at a signing in Jersey. And uh when he walked in, I was like, Rick, can I talk to you for a sec? He's like, sure, Diamond. And we walked over to the corner and I said, Listen, man, I know I you know, we've had heat over the years. He goes, Ah, oh, Diamond, water under the bridge. Don't worry about that. I go, Rick, I'm not worried about it. I truly want to fix it. I said, I you know, I I don't know how it started. I don't care. I mean, I know you've said some stuff. I've said some stuff. I don't care. I said, I would so much rather like start all over again. I go, I'm Diamond Dallas Page. And I put my hand out and he popped. He grabbed my hand. He hugged me, kissed me on the forehead. God bless you, my son. And, you know, felt like I was anointed, you know, yeah. by the Pope, which I kind of was. And, and Rick was so cool. And we, 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 we over those next few years. And when I went in the Hall of Fame, he flew me home in his Learjet. When he found out it was my birthday, he took me out to dinner, wined me, dined me, and sent me home in a limousine. I mean, that's Ric Flair, but that was the greatest ending to a Hall of Fame week you could possibly have. Uh, while we're going down uh, memory road here, um, I thought it would be cool to close out with maybe a, a memory that you have uh, with Scott Hall. I mean, somebody you got to obviously spend so much time with. Um, I'm sure you have millions of stories, but <laughs> yeah, maybe just talk about Scott Hall for a little bit. Well, you know, coming in because I had Dusty. When Dusty brought me in as the manager, I had worked for him in Florida Championship Wrestling. And then... When he brought me into WCW, 
he just didn't bring me in as a manager and a color commentator. He put me in the office. So I'm there and I never knew the heat I was getting from it. <laughs> but <laughs> your you office. Know, this, uh, you know, I'm in the office, but, but from the people in the office, because <laughs> he would ask me questions. What do you think, Dave? He would, Dave, Dave, what do you think about this? You know, and I give my answers, you know? Yeah. So I really kind of felt like I knew a lot, you know, because of being in that spot. And, and then Scott Hall had called me. And I'm managing the Freebirds, and he says, uh, hey, Dally. He's always called me Dally because we worked together in Florida Championship Wrestling. And he said, you remember that diamond stud idea? I said, yeah, of course I do. It was an idea I had for a tag team. And um, he said, you know, you wouldn't look like Andre the Giant with those tiny little free birds if you were standing next to six foot six, 295 pounds, a twisted steel and sex appeal. <laughs> yeah. And I went, wow, <laughs> you're right. Let me call Magnum. So I call Magnum up. Magnum TA is Dusty's right-hand man at the time. He goes, you know, I always like Scott. He goes, let me run it up the flagpole. Let me ask Dusty. He came back, called me back. He said, they're not going to look at him. And I go, but why, man? He's 295. He looks great. You know, he's a handsome son of a bitch. He goes, he's been here twice, D. And what he had told Scott, he told me before this, was New York wouldn't return his phone calls. And he would Atlanta. And that's why he was coming to me. I said to him, when he said, we've already seen it twice, and he didn't get over. I said, what if I could change his look? And he said, what do you mean? I said, what if he didn't look like Scott Hall? And he goes, I'll tell you what, we're not flying him up. If he'll drive, I go, he'll drive. He goes, I'll get you the tryout. So I call Scott up and I tell him that they don't want him. And man, his wife's pregnant with Cody at the time. He He's thinking about going to work at, for Home Depot, right? He says, I, I said to him, I said, how about this? Nobody's got jet black hair. If you go back to the night, late, late 80s, 90s, everybody had blonde hair. Everybody had you know, dirty blonde hair. They had blonde hair, everybody, except for Honky Tonk, man. I said, what if you dyed your hair like that blue-black Elvis color? He said, all right. He goes, I'll do it. Okay, so I said, be here tomorrow morning because I want to make sure we got things together because I got some clothes. I've got this idea for, you know, what I want you to look like. So um, he shows up at my house. Oh, wait a minute. At 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm watching MTV because I'm a nightclub guy. I'm, I'm still not used to going to bed at 11 or 12. I still don't do that. I don't get to bed till 12 or 1. And uh, I said, I, I called him at 2 in the morning. He's like, Dally. What are you doing? My wife's sleeping. Hold on. So he gets out of the bedroom. He goes, what? I go, I'm watching George Michael right now. And, and MTV, he's got this five o'clock shadow. It looks unbelievable. you got to shave that walrus mustache. And he says, Dally, I've had this mustache since I was 15. <laughs> of course. I said, just another reason why you need to shave it, you know? So he shows up at my house 
with that five o'clock shadow that he got around two o'clock. It completely changed his face. He was so <laughs> handsome, but he had, he dyed, he dyed his hair with it was like that wash in dye, you know. So like mousy brown, well, it's like mousy brown, you know. I go, the hair's not making it, but the mustache looks awesome. So I took him to the girl back then. He used to do my highlights for me. When I looked at him, boy, I put him in these Cavaricci pants. I put him in this long coat that was a uh, was a camel hair coat, hot as hell, but it looked really cool. Black sunglasses, and he brought his own loafers. And when we rolled into where we used to film, where um, when we rolled into uh, center stage, no one knew him. Not and and but you got to think about that. That's Say awesome. you just you know you know what you look like. You know who you are. If you did your you know red, you did your hair red, and you just you just got a tattoo or something, you know, and no one knew you. You'd be like. Becky, it's me. You know, whoever it is, it's me. Oh my God. You know, it's that, it's that thing, you know, it freaked him out, but Dusty loved it. And now we're doing our first interview. And this is the most classic thing of all time. And this is God's work. We're leaving Waffle House and Waffle House. They've got toothpicks there. They're one of the few places we've got toothpicks. And I grabbed two toothpicks. I give them one. I put it in my mouth. I'm like, oh, my God, bro, I got this great idea. We'll both have toothpicks. And right at the end, we flick them at the camera. After the match, I, I give them the toothpick. We're in, being interviewed in the middle of the stage. I've got mine in my mouth. And while I'm talking, mine falls out of my mouth. And he does the bump, bump, bump to the camera. Bad guy was born. Wow, wow, wow. That's awesome. I had no idea that it originated in a Waffle House. I feel like that's where all um, great American moments happen. Happens in the Waffle House. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> That's amazing. A wow. Great story. <laughs> Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the week. Enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full-length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see what you're hearing, head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there, and you can see us talking, having this interview, having a hangout. It's all up on there, um, and that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well so we can see you guys over there and jump in the comment section you know jump in chime in leave a comment uh, we like filtering through them all reading about them maybe even like I don't know some constructive criticism if you had it we're all ears god did I open up a can of worms by saying that I don't know be nice be cool in there this has been the sessions <laughs> <laughs>